0: Thank you. This is Pamela Kuhn and the curtain is now up on center stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. The author Kurt Vonnegut is quoted as saying, we have to continually be jumping off cliffs and developing our wings on the way down. I know many artists who have taken the risk to jump off the cliff, to seek out a new environment, to listen for a new voice in their creativity to explore the corners of their own set of boundaries. But why? Because their art is a constant source of discovery and reinvention. In the case of Ukrainian-born concert pianist Ina Falix, her pianistic prowess is coupled with a strong sense of narrative, of making the big reveal in who she really is with the choreography of music and words in performance. She paints a canvas for a deeper understanding of her music making and leaves us with an intimate timeline of her relationship with life and the composer. Ina Alex is professor of piano and the head of piano at UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music. Her international performing career includes thousands of concerts and recitals throughout the US, Asia, and Europe. The New Yorker calls her adventurous and passionate and the Washington Post claims poetry and panoramic vision. Committed to innovative programming, Miss Falix has premiered 13 Waves of Looking at the Goldberg. She has performed and recorded the unknown piano works of Russian poet Boris Pasternak, appeared in theatrical productions such as Admission One Shilling, with Downton Abbey star, Leslie Nicol, and is the founder and curator of Words and Music, a series that pairs live performances with readings by established contemporary poets. I have just heard her recent performance of Polonaise Fantasy, an autobiographical monologue for pianist and actress. It is a fascinating invitation into the world that Ina Falix inhabits as a world-class musician, and I am thrilled to have her in my studio today. Ina Falix, welcome to Center Stage. Thank you so much for having me, Pamela. Well, the thrill is all mine, and the thrill was mine to hear your, your concert. This is, this is absolutely innovative and beautiful. Thank okay, you. I just have to ask you, first of all, are you just a natural-born storyteller? You know
1: <laughs> it's very flattering to be asked this question. I never thought about it. I suppose I enjoy people. I enjoy people's stories. I enjoy telling them and hearing them and I, I love books. I've always loved books and poetry and writing and I think every piece tells a story. I When I teach my students at UCLA, I tell them that you have to know the piece you're playing like you would know your friend. You would know your friend's life story in the same way you have to know a piece's life story mm-hmm. and the composer's life story. So in that way, I think every work of art in some way has to tell a story, you know, whether it's easy to understand and relate to or whether you have to delve deeply and consider it from many different sides and probably both.
0: So we have just been privy to your marvelous story of your own life, punctuated with the music you think is, is perfect for the scenario. So how did this come to be? Uh, that's why I asked you if you're a natural storyteller. Because you tell these wonderful stories about growing up in the Ukraine and your family crowded into the, you know, the one-bedroom apartment and, and everything that is a reality for you as a Jewish musician in, in the Ukraine. And finally being able to do that great immigration move to the United States so how, how did you come to wanting to embrace the story and tell all of us
1: thank you for this wonderful question um, well about seven years ago so my son is now seven years old which is hard to believe but when I was very pregnant and living in the Upper West Side at 105th Street a few blocks away from the best bakery in town Silver Moon Bakery <laughs> um, you know, It was a very hot summer, and I had just had to withdraw from an engagement playing Liszt Concerto at the Peninsula Festival, where I had since appeared many times with wonderful conductor Victor Jampolsky. Um, but I was just too pregnant to make this trip to uh, Door County, Wisconsin, I, and the, the piece is quite heavy, the Liszt Piano Concerto, number one. And it was a few days within the due date, so the doctor said, yeah, you, you can't do that. So I was very upset because I was prepared to do it. Of course. I very much wanted to do it. I, I felt great. Um, playing the piano while (laughs) very pregnant. But, so I was in the apartment, you know, very hot, and I thought that I really wanted to start writing down some of these memories. Um, They were so vivid, more vivid than ever, and I wanted to tell them, you know, to my son. And I just wanted to record them on paper. So I started writing them, and I realized this can be a book. This will be a book, a memoir. So I was writing and writing and writing, and about 60% of the book was complete, and then, you know, life took over, and I was doing other things, and th- those pages were there. And uh, I moved to Los Angeles, and I had the piano department at UCLA, they're now a professor of piano, and these pages had found their way into the hands of a wonderful producer, Cynthia Komsky, a television producer. She said, you know, I have this series where we present readings of plays I want." Wh- to make a monologue out of this. So with her help, I turned this into a monologue, and we premiered it with an actress, wonderful actress, Rebecca Mozo, who has done a lot of theater work and um, film and, and uh, shows, television shows, etc. cetera. Um, so we did that, and then we recorded the CD for Dallas, which came out approximately a year ago, and I was very proud of this, because I thought, you know, it's a, the most personal thing, really, that I've ever done. And then somehow or other it came to me that I should read these stories myself Mm -hmm. because I guess quite a few people had asked me and so I did it once and it felt great and I thought it felt convincing and it was also much easier um, than to have to have an actress with you or to go somewhere and to collaborate with an actress not that I don't love to do that but I felt that because they're my stories it was more immediate for the audience to hear them in, in my voice. Of course. So that's how that came to be. I've been performing this for about a, a year now, and there are many performances coming up. Um, we did the New York premiere last night, and I, it's been a thrill. It's been really wonderful
0: to do this. So that was my obvious next question. Of course, you living in the land of Hollywood, when would the film of your life be out? I'm, <laughs> I sh- know. I'm sure it's
1: coming somehow. <laughs> well, first I have to finish the book. Yeah, exactly. Book. But what working you working
0: on that? But what you've done here is given us what we always want in a concert. You know, we, we go to hear, a, let's say, a great pianist, a great violinist, and we all sit in the audience and we start to fantasize about their lives, about you know, what it takes for them to get there, the, the journey. What did they do that morning before they went on stage? Did, did they have anxiety, you know? And what have they been through personally? And you've just answered every question. But you did it with a sense of a beautiful kind of answering the mysteries between the notes. You know what I mean? You were so, you were so descriptive and so intimate about everything you shared with us. I mean, for instance, at the beginning when you talked about growing up in the Ukraine— and and realizing you were a pianist, your your mother having been a fine pianist. But your grandmother is saying to you, when you when you play Bach, you have to think dark and holy. <laughs> and you said, how about warm and, and purple? Purplish? <laughs> That's right. Is yes. is that how you see music? Is is that do you see music in colors?
1: You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say maybe specifically in colors, but I see I mean, music to me is, is as, I, as I say later in the story, it's impossible really to put music into words but we can try and there's so many there are endless possibilities so of course I think images thinking of images, thinking of colors, of words to describe things and again this is something I tell my students all the time, I ask them to describe exact emotions, not happy or sad those words are not allowed
0: right.
1: in my studio to but exact, topics. precise emotions mm-hmm. so at that moment, I just remember my you know, the childhood state of having to play Bach, and what, what inspired me? How did I think about that sound? And that's what I remember imagining, is that this is what I have to do. You know, this kind of stately, dark, this warm This beautiful
0: sound. visual, this room you take us into, really, you know? Thank you. And are, are you a synesthete?
1: Um, no, not necessarily, like Scrabin <laughs> no. yeah exactly not, I wouldn't say that, no, but I you know I think i'm how can I say this? I guess I'm sort of a poetic soul. <laughs> I, I love literature, I read a lot obviously, and i like I like words and I like descriptions I don't skip them when if I'm reading a great novel, I don't script the skip the descriptive parts I, I, if they're well written, I enjoy them very much, and I like to write myself, so I think that's where these images come from
0: you've obviously given us a kind of um i i was sitting here thinking it's like a waltz you know the the play the interplay between the reality of your words in your life and the reality of the composer's words through music um it's such a perfect marriage thank you is now tell me when you came to choose the music to really match your life or describe your life was this something that was instantaneous did you have you know, real hits about what pieces you would choose immediately?
1: I think so, yes, because, well, these had to be pieces that related to the story. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to be pieces that maybe I studied with Mr. D, Mr. Del Rosario, the teacher about whom I speak. And uh, so some of those pieces were specifically chosen because of that. I've I've played them all my life, and they're, you know, encore pieces. Uh, Others I felt just fit the story. Like, you know, so the first half of the program is I would say darker, more dramatic. It's mm-hmm. very sad, also losing mm-hmm. him. It's about loss. It's about the, the immigration, of course, is you know painful even to talk about in, in the opening. So the first half is quite dark. And then the second half is the romantic comedy part, right? Which, which has a happy ending. Um, so that part, I thought the Beethoven bagatelles, on one hand, they're full of humor, and they're short and kind of very laconic, and they just kind of perfectly, I think, transcribe what I'm talking about into musical terms, and these are the last pieces that Beethoven wrote for the piano. They're absolute genius, they're unbelievable, and uh, so for me, in the end, when I try to bring the whole thing together and say, you know, we can't really talk about music, it's like saying God's name, because, you know, of Mm -hmm. course, in the Jewish religion, we can't say God's name. so we can't really talk about it because it's so magical and for me, that last Bagatelle is that magical it's that transcendent moment the last thing he wrote for the piano
0: beautifully put and I felt there was an element of playfulness in the Bagatelle's that really described young love that, that kind of bated breath excitement the confusion you speak about you know, why does this man come into my life and upset my, my practice schedule I mean, <laughs> exactly. it, was, it was so I still real. say that to him <laughs> 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 I love that, you know. I love that. When getting back to your your days in the Ukraine, um, it must have been so confusing for you in a way. I mean, here you were uh, this burgeoning pianist, and then suddenly you hear this word immigration, and your parents who, who gave up so much, I'm sure, to make sure you had a life in in a free land in their yes. eyes. Um, we've heard this story many times. I've, I've interviewed dancers. Um, uh, we, I've talked about the story of uh, Sergei Palunin the, the ballet dancer, um, uh, Slava Gryasnov, all these, these musicians and artists who had parents that were really key to making sure that their children had a life elsewhere and a chance to perform. This must have a profound um, effect on you as a responsible parent now with your son.
1: Yes. Um, And my daughter. So I have two kids, seven-year-old son, Nathaniel. How do you Mm
0: -hmm. have time for children?
1: It's very difficult. (laughs) My daughter, her name is Frida. They're very different. They're amazing. Um, And I have a wonderful husband, of course, Misha, um, from from the story. It's very difficult because, you know, I had gone through the rigorous discipline that it takes to become Mm -hmm. a world-class musician. It's, you know, you give up A lot of things even when you don't you don't realize you give them up but to become good at something you have to do it you know and everyone who's a musician who's a good musician they know this but and i'm so grateful Mm -hmm. that i've had this but at the same time i feel a responsibility to my child to whatever he chooses to be and that Mm -hmm. i just want him and her both of them of course to be happy and fulfilled and they don't necessarily have to be musicians. I don't think I have it in me to, <laughs> to make them practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I, I'm so grateful to, especially my mother, who takes so much, only now I realize how much it takes to stay by your child and make sure they are playing at the level they should be playing at. My son plays violin. It's very hard for me as a performer and as a professor of music to come home and practice with my son. It's next to impossible. <laughs> so it's it's very difficult, and I appreciate so much more what she did. Imagine.
0: Can you please recount to my listeners who haven't heard your show about the reality of the immigration going from the Ukraine to uh, Vienna, and literally playing on a table when you did <laughs> not have access to a piano?
1: Well, so the story is that you know in the late '80s, the Jews, the Jewish refugees who left, were still going through a very particular route. So, uh, Right after 91, or even 90, I believe, p- people would just fly straight from whatever city they were coming from well, to Moscow, and then from Moscow to New York, and then to wherever they were mm-hmm. gonna end up, mm-hmm. wherever they had a uh, family who signed for them, or something like this. But um, in the case of the late 80s, uh, families would travel from the former Soviet Union to Vienna, and uh, from Vienna to Rome, to Italy, from Italy, that's where people would stay for months and wait for permission to go on, because the the interview with the consulate took place in Italy, and um, the interview with the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, HIAS, who made it possible for all these people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews,
0: Brilliant. to
1: immigrate, um, that happened in Vienna. So, you know, it's a long mm-hmm. journey, and it's a difficult mm-hmm. one, and of course I didn't realize it was difficult when I was little but you know a lot of hardships you you know you live in a room with eight other people Mm -hmm. and you eat canned food for a couple months Mm -hmm. and you don't have any money so but at the same time my parents in their early 30s suddenly saw the wonders of Europe that they never thought would be available for them to see and that to them was absolutely eye-opening and a delight Mm -hmm. and I I remember we, we walked every street of Rome which my dad knew very, very well because both my father and my mother are very well read and they're, you know, they, they knew these cities before coming to them because they'd read all about them and they knew the literature, they knew the music, but then to end up there and see it with their own eyes was, I, I can't really imagine what it must have been like for them um, in their early 30s, you know, just out of Soviet Union with, you know, these clothes that are you know, awful, and not, nothing, really nothing material. And suddenly to see these burgeoning, gorgeous, blossoming
0: mm-hmm. places,
1: How chocolates beautiful. for sale, clothes for sale, you know, suddenly to yeah. see a capitalist country, mm-hmm. a non-communist environment. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went off topic. But, um, yes, I when we were throughout immigration, I practiced on whatever hard surface they were, there would be, and my mother made sure that I did that, that I played my scales and etudes just to make sure that my fingers remained nimble. Mm-hmm. And then um, we did find a family with a piano oh, in okay. Rome, and there were this was a flautist who I, I wish I could find him now, you know. but his name was Renzo Cesano. He was a flautist in one of the orchestras in Rome, and I can't remember which one, but my mother taught their, the children of that family piano and in exchange for that i practiced piano at their house um and then i had a recital my first solo recital was in rome and uh, how old were you then i was 10 years old i think yeah i was 10 years old 10 years old so the book describes all this there is a chapter in the book about this it's not in the show in that kind of detail although it you know things certain things are mentioned in the show but
0: this is so overwhelming, you know, the, the, the stories within the stories. And uh, there are so many, I can't there wait for the book. But one of the things I loved was when you spoke very, very intimately about meeting up again with Jan Friedlin. Yes. And you play one of his pieces, The Ballade in Black and White, yeah. And and tell us about that a little bit How you were reunited and, and how he wrote for you
1: Well, it was very moving, of course So I went to Israel to visit Misha This was after we had gotten together And we were flying back and forth So I went to Israel And uh, I decided to find him because these composition lessons were very strong in my mind. Were yes. very, it was a very memorable experience. And I did start out as a composer, not just a, a pianist. And I hadn't comp- composed in many years. So, in a way, this form of performance and music words, my series with poetry, all that is kind of, you know, because I have a creative streak, I want mm-hmm. to make things, mm-hmm. and I haven't been composing. So, this is just another way, I guess, mm-hmm. of expressing that. But so I got in touch with him, and it was very moving. I visited him and I played for him and then he wrote me this piece as a portrait of me at the piano. So it, it's not, you know, he's not a painter, he's a composer, so it's a portrait through notes. That was
0: my next question, the ballad, ballad in black and white, of course, the black and white of the <laughs> keyboard. Yeah. You have a wonderful conscience for remembering all of those who have been important in your life. You know, you talking about the floutes you wish you could be reunited with. And, of course, that brings me to the obvious, the real crux of your show, I thought, which is Dr. D. Mr. D. Mr. D. Mr. D. So can you tell us about the importance, the the eight years you spent with him studying in the Chicago area in your new home, and what he really meant to you?
1: Well, you know it's really very hard to describe in words, but in a way, he made me my chops, as we call them you know he mm-hmm. he formed so many young pianists, and he was very well known for this and uh, but he did it in an effortless and kind of very gentle and nurturing way, but at the same time inexorable but you know when you're eleven years old and twelve or twelve and you're in this new country and it was very difficult mm-hmm. you know bullying all that kind of stuff is very very difficult but then you have this presence in your life who just guides you and that's all you need and you know this he was that presence for me um, my whole life was playing the piano in his studio and going Saturday to Saturday to Saturday and preparing more repertoire and he his students you know he was very known for giving young pianists very difficult pieces when they didn't know they were so difficult so I learned the Mm -hmm. Tchaikovsky concerto at 12 or 13 I had no idea I had big hands I could do the octaves Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was hard and young pianists can play very naturally you know I think it's true that Mozart is very easy to play when you're a child and it's never quite that easy again of course so you know (laughs) and it's by just by that mentality he would give pieces that were that difficult technically but we were so well prepared already technically that mm-hmm. nothing really was difficult and so to, he gave me the confidence well you know i always was a performer and i always loved to perform mm-hmm. but this became with him this became a need and a part of life that was very natural because every saturday you were performing and you know he put you in many competitions he gave you many opportunities when you were his student to perform and so this is just you became a concert artist at a very young age, because th- that's just what you did, you know. And, and he recognized this talent in you. I, I was
0: so moved when you spoke so beautifully about doing a huge concert in New York City, and the day before, you flew out to be with him when, when he was so ill, mm-hmm. and you played for him. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it was. That was also <laughs> very difficult. But um, he, yeah. He was dying, and so I played an, a keyboard. I played a big program for him, and uh, you know when you think so you really that person can't recognize you anymore, but then you realize, no, they're fully there. They yes, just they are. they're not able to speak anymore, but it was In
0: music, they're fully there. Yeah. And, and you go on about how he asked to hear the beautiful um, the Polonaise
1: fantasy. And I didn't know it, and then I learned it, and I wish that I had known it. Of course. Now I want to mention another teacher of mine who means so much to me, Anne Shine, who I believe lives in this area, yeah. mm-hmm. and I worked on this piece extensively with her, and she inspired me tremendously.
0: Wonderful. You know,
1: so I needed to say that.
0: <laughs> why? Why do you think Mr. D asked for that particular piece?
1: Well, he loved late Chopin works. This one is a very mystical, transcendent mm-hmm. sort of piece by Chopin. I would imagine that, you know, when you know you don't have a long time remaining, that's the kind of music that makes you feel complete. So I think this piece, it it takes a lifetime, really, to mm. to play this music well. Of course. And, you know, like late Beethoven, it's, they're mysterious pieces. So I, I can understand... Why he loved this piece all his life, and why he wanted to hear it. And, and he had lived that
0: lifetime as mm-hmm. a pianist and educator. Mm-hmm. and oh my gosh. So you spoke about having uh, large hands yourself. Mm-hmm. I felt um, one of the questions I jotted down during your performance was that I felt you have a really big technique. Mm. You get a lot of sound out of the piano. Ina, do you do you feel that pianists are born like that? Or is this something that's really developed by a really wise teacher?
1: I think it's both. I think it's wonderful. I mean, I I was lucky to be born with hands that, you know, I can play things, big, very big things, Brahms, Ravel, Gaspar de la Nuit, big concerti, you know, and it feels good, it feels comfortable. Then again, things like Haydn might be a little more tricky because Mm -hmm. I have big hands. Mm -hmm. I don't have small, so I have to, you know, we have to adjust. But, and again, I tell this to a lot of my students who have very small hands, that ultimately it really doesn't matter. It's what's in here. It's the imagination and the sound you imagine. That's fantastic.
0: So I just have to ask about Misha. Of course, this story about how you meet, one only has to watch this show, and of course to to buy your CD, your marvelous CD, so we can hear this story, this love story that's actually bookended, kind of like Mm -hmm. a, a Schumann, a Robert Schumann song cycle. Oh, you, you meet him in the beginning, in, in the Ukraine, and you marry him in the end, and it's such a happy ending.
1: Thank you. And he is totally supportive of you. And Yes, he's an amazing, amazing person.
0: It has and, to be. Uh,
1: a very interesting person to be with. Oh, I mean, you know, how else can a marriage work?
0: <laughs> this, this is so interesting. If I had to ask you one, if there's one word that sums you up. Oh my God. <laughs> what comes to your mind?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> right now, you just played yeah. a concert. You're exhausted. Yeah, well, don't ask really me that. that. No, I don't know because there's so much, too many words. <laughs> too many. I, I don't know. Well, then you have ask. to ask somebody else. Okay, I will. I will, and I
0: think I can answer that too. But it, just immediately, I want to know. I, I started this interview talking about Kurt Vonnegut's phrase about jumping off the cliff, mm-hmm. and I feel that you did, and I, I still feel you were you were growing <laughs> on the way down. Would you agree with that?
1: I hope so. I hope I'm jumping up, but not like Icarus. I hope my <laughs> wings don't melt. They're not going to melt.
0: I think you are an adventure, and you're one fabulous musician. Thank you so much. Edith Alex, thank you for being on Center Stage. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. you.